If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. That's page 947 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a pew Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. That's John chapter 6. Jess and I celebrated 10 years of marriage in May. Yep, all right. Uh, By celebrated, I mean we didn't do much. I had PhD seminars shortly after in Louisville. But eight days from now, Lord willing, we'll be in Mexico celebrating. Prayerfully, the weather will be nice. We'll have access to pools and the beach. We'll get to eat and swim. We'll get to spend extended time reading and praying and resting. And best of all, it will just be us. (laughs) I love our kids. I do. I love them. If I had a thousand lives, I would have those four kids a thousand times. At least three of the four. No, 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 all of them. I'd have all of them a thousand times. But they're not going to be going on this trip with us. With a thousand trips to Mexico with Jess, they'd go to Jess's parents a thousand times. This will feel for us the coming out of the storm, the landing on the beach in many respects, as you know. The location, the people, the activities, the ease, the rest. It will be an ideal week of vacation. If you were planning the perfect day or week of your life, what would it look like? Okay, you might just dream a little bit. What would you do? Where would you be? Where would you go? What would you eat? Who would be there? Who wouldn't be there? All right, let's take it up like 100 notches. If you were planning the perfect world, okay, imagination's your limit. You're planning the perfect world, what is it like? What is and isn't happening? Are you working, but it's a job you love? Or is it mostly vacation? Is there crime? Do people get sick? Do they die? I'm assuming no. Are there children? Are there elderly? Is there kind of a sweet spot right in the middle? Do you sweat? Do you suffer? What's the food like? Will there be broccoli? What's the climate like? The geography? What are the people like? Again, who made it and who didn't? Is Jesus there? We're essentially describing the new heavens and new earth as we talk about a perfect place. A place without sin or sickness, without death or disaster, without crime or castigation. How central is God to your understanding of life? To your understanding of goodness? What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. What will make the new earth so much more glorious is that it becomes heaven. It comes to share in and reflect God's qualities all the more because God himself is there. Maybe we would say in a new way, in a more visible way. It's an interesting thought experiment. Can you conceive of a perfect place without Jesus? If so, what is it you need Jesus for? Is he a bonus in heaven or is he heaven itself? Said differently, is Jesus simply means to an end or is he also the end itself? Why do we follow Jesus? Something to keep in mind as we read the text. John 6, beginning in verse 22. If you're able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of and in reference of Holy Scripture. John 6, beginning in verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea 
saw that there had only been one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his, seat, his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. As we've seen in the book of John, Jesus' chief concern is to reveal the triune God and offer eternal life, which is communion with him. Jesus comes from heaven to give us himself. He aims to reveal God and give life. And in our text, Jesus is going to preach on life through the image of bread or food. And he's linking it to a previous sign, two signs ago. He's linking it to Israel's history. And he's linking it to a basic need of ours, which is to eat, to live. We'll see three characteristics about the life that Jesus offers. They stand in contrast to the life that we seek apart from Christ. Jesus offers the good life. It stands in contrast to any perfect world you can construct without him. The life that Jesus offers is eternal, it's free, and it's better. The life that Jesus offers is eternal, it's free, and it's better. It's eternal. It doesn't fade or corrupt. It's free from sin and death, both of which are antithetical to happiness it's free. It is a gift from God. In fact, as we'll see, God himself is the gift. And it's just better. Better than anything you will find on this earth. First, the life that Jesus offers is eternal. We begin in verse 22 with a bit of background. The next day. So quite a bit has happened yesterday, you'll recall. After leaving Jerusalem, a multitude, 5,000 men, probably closer to 20,000 people gather around Jesus they saw the healing signs, John 6, 2, that he had done. They come to him. It got late. They're in a remote place. Jesus, having compassion on them, feeds them. He miraculously fed them, multiplying five loaves and two fish. The people saw the sign and they confessed. They thought this is the prophet who has come into the world. They wanted to make him king by force. Now, it appears that they accepted Jesus. Really, they misunderstand the kind of king that Jesus is and the kingdom that he brings. They think that it's purely material, that it's only centered on our comfort and prosperity here. 
This will come up again today. Jesus retreats, of course, up into the mountain to pray. He sends the disciples across the sea where they're met by a storm. Jesus walks out to them. He stills the storm. He takes them across to dry land in an instant. Okay, that was one day. Think about what you did yesterday. (laughs) Probably not this exciting. Our Our text takes place the following day. Verse 22, the next day. The crowds that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. So the same crowd that Jesus fed, they saw the disciples get in the boat. They're kind of on a stakeout. They're trying to figure out where did our king run away to. But they know now that Jesus is no longer there. Older commentators from Cyril to Calvin, they note that the crowds understand that something miraculous happened. They might not know exactly what happened, but there were 13 people here, 12 people got on a boat. They're about to find 13 people on the other side. Okay, this is the five loaves for 5,000 people kind of math that doesn't add up. Jesus is doing something miraculous. They came to him initially, John 6, 2, because they saw the signs he was performing. They saw another sign on the mountain. They suspect that another sign has occurred. They're going to keep following him as long as they get signs. And on the face of it, totally natural. If someone was healing kids and giving out free sourdough and water skiing without a boat, we would be pretty interested too. But remember, the signs, they're intended to lead to belief, but they cannot create it. They cannot create belief. If you're only interested in signs, you'll only follow Jesus insofar as you get signs. They'll keep following the signs until they actually come to understand him. Verse 23, some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten. Someone gets on like old school Uber. Uber boats come over, pick them up. Verse 24, when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor disciples were there, they got into the boats. They went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Okay, the stage is set. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, I don't think their question is really, when did you get here? As though they're concerned with his itinerary. You can ask multiple questions with one question. You can ask more penetrating questions with a simple question. Perhaps you foolishly snuck out late one night in high school and over breakfast, the next day your dad asks you, what time did you get in last night? Okay, he's wondering a lot more than What time was it you got home? Jesus, when did you get here? Jesus, how did you get here? Jesus, why did you leave us? Jesus, don't you want to be our king? Now, if you look at verse 25 again, I don't know that that offer's on the table anymore. They call Jesus what? Rabbi. From prophet who's come into the world, whom they were about to make king by force, to rabbi. From we'll die for you to we'll listen to you teach for a while. Right? When the teaching gets too hard, verse 60, we'll leave. How can there be such a flip for someone? Why do some of our friends and family flip on Christ? It seems like for a time they were excited. They confessed that he's the king. And then at some point, maybe they stop following him or they say they still believe in Jesus, but their Jesus looks very different from ours, less a Lord, more a pal. Why the change? 
What ought we to fear about ourselves? You see, the crowds weren't interested in Jesus because of Jesus. Rather, they were interested in him because of what they thought he could do for them. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Translation, you don't actually want me as your king, but your chef. You're not concerned about your hearts, but your stomachs. You're not wanting the spiritual life that I offer, but the physical bread that I made. Why do they flip? Calvin writes, as soon as Christ does not grant their prayers, he is no longer their master. They went to Jesus, not for Jesus. Now notice the irony. John tells us in verse 2 of this chapter, they started following Jesus because they saw the signs. Verse 14, they saw the feeding sign. That's when they confessed that he was the prophet. Verses 20 through, 22 through 24, they do a lot of seeing. They saw the disciples get into the boat. They saw Jesus had not. They saw Jesus and the disciples were gone. Jesus says, you haven't seen anything. Right? There's spiritual blindness. You might have seen the bread, but you completely missed the meaning. If you knew what the signs signified... You'd fall on your knees in repentance. You'd lift your eyes in faith. You wouldn't ask me for more bread. You'd serve me. You can hear a kind of echo of John 4. If you only knew who was speaking to you, you'd ask him for bread that leads to eternal life. But they don't see. He came to his own. They did not recognize him. They didn't receive him. Why? It's not because Jesus is being difficult to understand. He's been teaching, doing signs, teaching, doing signs. He comes to people who have their scriptures, an entire system in place for them to understand him. They don't understand because they're sick of heart. And what Jesus is doing right now in love, he's rebuking them. Notice it's possible to think you see Jesus. It's possible to think you understand Jesus and yet not. We all, I'm sure, know people who think themselves to be Christians And we're confident they're probably not. Jesus shows us the loving thing to do, the gracious thing to do, the compassionate thing to do, the merciful and kind thing to do is to speak the truth in love. A good doctor will tell you when you're sick. A good teacher will tell you when you're failing. A good Christian friend will tell you when your belly is full but your heart is not. But notice the heart of the buke. The reason they only see bread is because all they want is bread. They view Jesus as some means to their end. They go to Jesus, not for Jesus. Augustine laments here how many there are who do not look for Jesus except when they want him to do them a temporal favor. Rarely does anyone seek Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, why do you follow Jesus? I would encourage you to spend your afternoon even thinking through this question, why do you follow Jesus? Is it to make things easier with your parents? Is it in hopes of marrying a good person? Is it the thing you do at a certain stage of life in our culture once you have kids? Is it for something physical and temporary? Why do you follow Jesus? Is it for something eternal, but it's still not Jesus? Like getting out of hell. 
even eternal benefits we receive in the gospel do not eclipse Christ. They can't be separated from Christ. He is our life. He is our righteousness. He is our adoption and sanctification. The gospel simply is being robed in Jesus and therefore his benefits. The Christian ought to, above all else, desire to be with Jesus. Why do you follow Jesus? A good litmus test for yourself. You might think on this this afternoon, are you choosing Jesus increasingly over sin, over sleep? Are you increasingly prioritizing meeting with Jesus and the saints on the Lord's day? To go to Jesus for anything other than Jesus is to choose something that will not last. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life. Food here, of course, it represents life. Jesus assumes we're all working towards some kind of vision of the good life. Our attention, our energy, our hopes, our efforts, our actions, they're all carried away by the desire to live. Every act of the will, we might say, is directed to the good as we perceive it. More simply put, you choose what you think is good because you think it will make you happy. That is the pursuit of life. The issue here is not that we want to live. It's that we put so much of our energy and efforts in things that do not actually give life and will not last. Look at verse 27 again. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. Jesus is telling us you're going to give yourselves to something. You're going to seek some kind of life. Choose what lasts forever. The problem is, according to the flesh, we are consumed with the temporal, the material. The good life, we think, is what will make us most comfortable on earth. Jesus is saying, what a waste. Pursue not just temporal comfort, but eternal blessedness. Choose real happiness. Something that won't break your heart. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us there, beginning in verse 19, don't store, store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, if you're if you treasure temporal things more than eternal things, you're setting yourself up for heartbreak. You'll find yourself constantly fighting against moth and rust and thief to preserve what will inevitably perish. If your treasure is in Christ, your heart is set on something that will never fail you. Jesus is telling us to orient yourselves to labor towards something that will last forever. Jesus is offering us instead immortality, incorruptibility, the forgiveness of sins, becoming the temples of God, one day ruling with him as kings and queens, sharing in his sonship, one day the vision of God. 
eternal blessedness that would blow our unglorified minds. Why? Because we get Jesus. We get Jesus. And yet so often our only question for him is, Jesus, do you got any more of that bread? No doubt he meets our needs. He loves to meet our needs as we've seen. He aims here to lift our eyes to higher degrees of happiness. Don't work for perishable food, but the food that leads to eternal life. You know when you go to a restaurant, they have like a kid's menu? You like at a good restaurant, and they still have a kid's menu. It's like quesadillas and chicken nuggets. <laughs> the adult's menu is like lobster, sea bass, ribeye. Imagine ordering chicken nuggets when steak is an option. Okay, if that's you, we invite you to turn from your sins to trust the Lord. I'm just playing. Kids, they eat like fools. Okay, their taste buds lack wisdom. They often choose what is cheap and quick. Jesus is telling us to choose the better thing. To even work towards acquiring a taste of something that is better. To aim not for fast food, but forever food. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in The Weight of Glory, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Our problem is we are short-sighted. We tend to not think beyond the here and now to the eternal we focus on the temporal, the material, the comfortable, and we go to Jesus because we view him as a means to increase those ends. This is why when our material, our temporal, our comfortable happiness decreases, we get mad at God. Our heart and our treasures are here. We are laboring for perishable bread. We think it's God's job to meet those desires. And so we go to Jesus. Do you got any more of that bread? Do you got something better, some meat? Hey, Jesus, I think it's time to give me that raise. Hey, Jesus, if you and I are going to work out, it's time you give me a spouse. Hey, Jesus, I've done everything you asked. I'm still getting sick. Why? Jesus as we've seen, he sends the storm, the trial, the lack to reveal where our hearts are that we might get more of him. And yet often we grumble against him. He doesn't answer our prayers. And to quote Calvin again, he ceases to be our master. Why? We went to him, not for him, but his stuff. Jesus, I think, would tell us plainly, I told you not to labor for perishable food. That was never a promise, but for the food that leads to eternal life. Work for the kind of bread that lasts more than a week and keeps you alive longer than a day. Direct your attention to heaven, to glory, to unspeakable joy, to Christ. This is how Paul puts it in Colossians 3. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, 
set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You can either choose to live for things that will perish or things that will last forever. To be clear, this doesn't mean that your options are to be like a monk, you know, severe asceticism, or to be a hedonist. Jesus is talking about the orientation of our lives. If you think that life is found in your house, in your car, in your health, in your clothing, in your rewards, in your title, in your pay, you're focusing on what will not last and cannot give you life. They will all fail you to a T. Jess had a blue Jeep Grand Cherokee in college. It should have been yellow because it was a lemon. Okay? Constantly, <laughs> constantly breaking. She's constantly putting money in it, constantly being disappointed. Okay, if you have a lemon, eventually, if you're not a fool, you give up, you give up on the car. You stop putting your money and your time in it if you can. Okay, a little pro tip here. In the long run, your body is a lemon. All the things that you own are lemons. This doesn't mean that we are, don't think of ourselves as stewards, that we don't care for the things that God has given us. It means with eternity in mind, we understand the things that we have here will not last. Your body will go to the grave and all your possessions will go to someone else until they wear out like you did. Don't live for what will perish, but what will last. This is how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The life that Jesus offers us does not end. It does not fade. It is not subject to rust or war or changing markets or storms. It is eternal. And it is a gift. Praise God that it is a gift. That means it's free. I got a call this week from a number I didn't know. I usually do not pick up these numbers. I don't know about you. See number, I don't know, I don't pick it up. I'm so glad I picked up this one because I found out that I won $5 million. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thinking new house for my family, new house for NBC. No, it turns out it was a scam. It was too good to be true. Now, they are, as we are going to see, they're thinking this sounds too good to be true. Bread that lasts forever. Normally, if food lasts a long time, it's not good for you. I can hear Nancy saying amen. <laughs> okay, we'll get back to this in a second, but they have manna. They have manna on the mind. You'll recall from Exodus 16, which we heard this morning, if they kept it for longer than a day, it got wormy. It got maggoty. It lasted a day. And Jesus is saying that he has bread that lasts forever. It sounds too good to be true. Verse 28, what can we do? What can we do to perform the works of God? Okay, you've got this bread. What can we do to perform the works of God? How do we get it? Again, you hear a bit of an echo, though a strong contrast we'll see with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus tells her that he has water springing up to eternal life. She responds, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come here again to draw. 
What do we need to do? What do we need to perform? What are the works? Like how much does it cost? Where do we go? How do we harvest it? Is there some kind of ritual involved? How do we get this forever bread? Jesus responds, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. What does God require of us that we may have eternal life? Nothing. It's faith. It's not actually a work in the technical sense. What God requires of us is that we simply believe. Why? How is this possible? Look at verse 27. It's because salvation is a gift. Don't work for food that perishes. Instead, desire the food that the Son of Man will give you. Paul explains the difference between working for pay and receiving a gift through faith in Romans chapter 4. He says, to the one who works, pay is credited, is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Okay, in a more technical sense, Work is something you do to earn. The thing is then owed to you. You might think of your paycheck. You work during the week or for weeks or a month, and then money is owed to you. Jesus is saying we simply believe. We trust him. We rest in him. We received a gift, which means it's not something owed to us. It's something given. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It answers, Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Article 22 of the Belgian Confession, it's a little wordy, so I'm going to paraphrase it. It's so good. It says, faith embraces Jesus Christ and seeks nothing more besides him. Either... Everything that is necessary for salvation is in Jesus or it's not. If everything necessary for salvation is not in Christ, then he's only a half savior. But it says, we confess with Paul that we are justified by faith alone without works. To speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies. For it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. What the confession is saying is that if salvation were one part Jesus, even if it's 99% Jesus and one part us, be it deeds or giving or rituals or repentance or faith even, salvation would cease to be a gift. Christ would be a half savior at best. Faith is not a work. It's an instrument by which we receive him, by which we rest upon him, by which we rely upon him for salvation alone. This is very important. It's not some kind of equation. Jesus plus my faith equals salvation. No, Jesus himself is salvation. Faith does not complete his work. It simply receives it. And what do we believe exactly? Verse 29, that Jesus is the one that God has sent. We embrace Christ as he has revealed himself in Scripture. He is, John 1, the word of God, meaning he's true God from true God. We embrace him as John tells us, 114, the one who assumed flesh. He is God who became true man, like us in every way except for sin. 
and we embrace him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. This is the good news of the gospel, that it's a gift. Though we live in a world of darkness, the light has come to us. And he came not just to reveal God, but to reconcile us to him. He's done so through his perfect life, obeying where we did not. He was punished on the cross in our stead. He has risen from the dead to glory. This is why he can offer us a gift that is incorruptible, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And we receive it simply by faith. If you're not a Christian, we would encourage you to stick around after service and ask one of our members here when and how it was that they became a Christian. What it's been like and why they follow Jesus. Jesus offers eternal life as a gift. And look again at what it stands in contrast with. Working here for something that fades. Don't work for what is perishable. Believe that the Son of Man gives eternal life. Imagine if Jess had kept that Jeep, or if you had a lemon yourself. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. And somebody offered her, offered her a free, nice, like a Tesla or something. We are currently accepting free Teslas, so keep that in mind. The only thing she has to do to receive this car is to give up her Jeep and receive the Tesla. It's a no-brainer. This is a time waste. It's a money waste. It's frustrating. You've got this thing that's better. It's good. Some, they hear this good news. They decide to keep the lemon. Some receive the Tesla, but they spend all their time thinking about the old car they used to drive. They don't even get to enjoy the gift that they've received. Those who experience the most joy are those who willingly, gladly give up this thing that's corruptible, that's perishing, and they never look back. The two options here couldn't be more drastic. Working for what will fail you, that's a guarantee, or receiving what never will. Here or ever, Jesus offers us life that is eternal and it's free and it's just better. The life that Jesus offers us is better. Jesus offers free food that leads to eternal life. Again, we'll see the crowd's response. It seems too good to be true. We do a lot of our shopping at Costco. It's like one of our favorite things to do as family. You know you've, you know you've hit adulthood when <laughs> it's the weekend, everyone get in the van, and we're driving to Costco, we're eating dinner there. Our kids' favorite thing, other than the churros, is the, is the samples. You know, you walk around, you find samples. But the thing about kids is they don't understand the concept of a sample. So when they find one they really like, they just want to keep going back. They want, every time we would pass by, they're like, can we have that again? You're like, no. And we try to explain to them the concept of a sample. You try a little, if you like it, you buy a lot, okay? It's free food that leads to you paying. Jesus offers free food that leads to eternal life. Adoption in the family whereby which everything actually becomes yours. It seems too good to be true. And so look how they respond, verse 30. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? Okay, you're telling us we need to believe in you. What sign are you going to do? What are you going to perform? Jesus, we need some proof. We need some credentials. What sign are you going to do? Now, if you're keeping track at home, they saw or at least heard of Jesus' healing signs in Jerusalem. 
they saw him turn five pieces of bread into enough food to feed thousands. They have a hunch that he miraculously crossed a stormy sea, and now they're wondering, Jesus, what sign are you going to give us? They think they stand in judgment of God. Echoes of what we heard earlier in Exodus chapter 16. Right, when you give me enough reasons, enough proof, enough signs, then maybe I'll believe you. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We are not here to put on a show, but to preach Christ, which is honestly something most people don't want to hear. Your friends will demand signs from you, answers for the problem and evil, answers for this injustice and history, answers for how this miracle is possible, answers for inconsistencies in the Bible. They'll ask for proofs and signs. And now hear me out, in love, in love, we answer. We answer with wisdom, with clarity, with honesty. But don't be mistaken, a hardened heart asks and asks and asks not because they want Christ. Our job is to preach Christ crucified. No sign, no amount of signs, no, doesn't matter how great the sign will be, it will not create faith. The crowds have seen plenty and yet they're not convinced. They're asking, what will you do for us? What will you perform so that we can believe? And honestly, they're just not very impressed with what Jesus has done so far. Verse 31, they say, our ancestors ate man in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They start doing a bit of a comparison here. Okay, they know they're waiting for the prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is who they thought Jesus was initially. But as they're thinking about Exodus 16, the text we heard, they're saying Moses gave our people food to eat, not just for one meal, but for every meal for 40 years. Moses didn't give us cheap barley bread, but manna from heaven. Moses didn't just feed a crowd, but an entire nation, hundreds of thousands of people. Jesus, not to sound ungrateful, but your miracle hardly compares to Moses. Jesus, not to sound ungrateful, but I kind of enjoyed my life more before I was a Christian. Jesus, not to sound ungrateful, but I think I could do better if I just stopped trusting you. They start working out this comparison and thinking that Jesus doesn't stack up. He then corrects them at every point. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, this is Greek for sit down, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Notice it wasn't Moses who gave but God. Moses was just a mediator, a tool. Moses didn't keep Israel alive. Jesus' father did. Notice, looking in at verse 32, notice the change of tense. Moses didn't give past tense. My father gives present tense. What does he give? He gives true bread from heaven. It's not that what Israel received was false bread. It's that it, was it like the barley loaves, was only a sign. It pointed to a greater reality which has now come to them. 
Jesus tells us what the gift is in verse 33. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The food that God gave through Moses, it became wormy after a day. It perished. It kept you alive only for a time. You had to work for it day after day after day. You had to keep eating it or you would die. It only fed one nation. The gift that God gives is for, verse 33, the entire world. Jesus is the bread from heaven that gives life to all who would believe. The life he offers is eternal, incorruptible. It comes as a gift and it's just better. It doesn't perish. Those who feast upon him will never die. He is the reality the sign pointed to. And he does far more than feed one nation for 40 years. He will feed every people from every tribe, nation, and tongue for all eternity who have come to believe upon him. Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 15. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What Jesus offers is better because he offers himself. The one who cares for us, the one who shelters us, the one who gives us more than this world has to offer. All they saw was the barley loaves. And they thought this miracle pales in comparison to what Moses did. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're actually missing what the miracle is. Not the manna, not the barley loaves. The miracle is me. It's God becoming man. The creator becoming a creature. Spirit assuming flesh. The immortal one becoming mortal. Life itself dying. The miracle is that God himself became a man and visited us. More than that, he came to those who would reject him, who in their darkened minds did not receive him, and yet he came to live for them and to die. Jesus is the miracle. The right response before him is not, when did you get here, but we can't believe you came. If you want to talk when or time with Jesus, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. John 1, 4, he created the world. John 1, 10, he was already in the world John 1.14, he came in a new way. The word became flesh. God became a man. The miracle is Christ. He is bread come from heaven to give those who recognize their poverty and their need to come to give them life. Those who are hungry are called to feast upon him. This is why it's often those who are physically full and content who are most apt to miss Jesus. Jesus himself is the miracle. The right response before him is not demanding more signs, but worship. As we often sing, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. 
but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Jesus is the miracle. Not when did you get here, but from where and why. The Father gives us bread from heaven and it's Christ. He offers us himself fully. In him we have the fullness of life, freedom from sin, immortality, a share in his sonship and kingdom, and it's a gift. The miracle is Jesus. Moses was just handing out free samples and the substance has come. The people hear this, they respond, verse 34. They say to him, sir, give us this bread always. Like the woman at the well, they ask for what he offers. She, however, a Samaritan woman, rock bottom, morally, socially, religiously, she meant it. She knew she was thirsty for life and she received it. We'll see later in John chapter 6. They really just want more bread. When they come to understand the sign, they leave. John leaves us as he often does with a choice. We see Jesus for who he is and how will we respond? Will we labor for what perishes, for what worms eat, for what storms destroy, for what thieves steal, for what death stops? Or will we believe that Jesus is sent from heaven to give us life? Will we orient ourselves toward him? Will we set our hope upon him? The life that he offers us is eternal, it's free, and it's better because he gives us himself. May we choose him. Let's pray.